The rare disease community is inspirational, brave, and empowering. Welcome to Insightful Moments, My Vibe, from PTC Therapeutics. everyone, and welcome back to PTC's Insightful Moments, My Bot, where we're elevating the voices of people within the rare disease community to inspire, inform, and comfort. My name is Paula Orendash, and I'm the Patient Engagement Liaison at PTC Therapeutics. Recently, we attended the 38th Annual Convention of the Huntington's Disease Society of America in New Orleans, where we spoke to many people who have been affected by Huntington's disease, or HD. HD is an incurable neurodegenerative disease that affects many different areas of the brain. Symptoms can vary, but usually involve a progressive breakdown of the patient's behavior, mobility, speech, and motor symptoms over the course of years or decades. Symptoms can begin to appear at any age, though they most commonly start in adulthood. Every child of a parent with HD has a 50-50 chance of inheriting the gene that causes the disease, so it can have a huge impact on families. HD can also affect younger people, which is known as juvenile Huntington's. Today, we give those who are affected by the disease a platform to share their stories about what it's like living with HD, being a caregiver of a loved one with HD, both adult and children, the impact on families and the generational component of HD, as well as the decision of testing or not testing. We begin our conversation today with London the mother and caregiver of 17-year-old Autumn, who has juvenile HD. London describes Autumn's diagnostic journey and speaks about how Autumn still participates in cheerleading despite her diagnosis. She also shares about all of her advocacy work supporting juvenile HD. Thank you so much for joining us for PTC's Insightful Moments My Vibe. Thank you for being here. I was very happy to be asked. I was more than happy to be asked. I said, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Please introduce yourself and tell us about you. My name is London. I am the mother, caregiver, advocate, best friend to my beautiful daughter, my youngest child, and she is battling juvenile Huntington's disease. She's 17 years old, was diagnosed in 2018, the same year that her father passed away from the disease. Justin was 38 years old, or 36 years old, excuse me, when he lost his battle. But her, my daughter's diagnosis, watching Justin bite, fight his battle and Autumn's diagnosis, it was really hard. It was obviously hard. Hard is an understatement, really. But I had to, I had to find my voice and my way to cope. And I have found that over the years, sharing our story, me and Autumn together, sharing our story and advocating and really just trying to be a, a voice and create resources for juvenile Huntington's disease has been how we've gotten through it. Like Louise was saying here at convention, we fight forward. And I love that so much. So that's my story. I am her full-time caregiver and I am home with her. Her her symptoms are changing, 
with every single day. But we take it one day at a time and we live life to the fullest. So family, people who are listening may not necessarily understand the difference between Justin's diagnosis and um, Auden's diagnosis as a juvenile Huntington's disease. Can you give the listeners an understanding of that? I will, yes. So Justin actually had juvenile Huntington's disease in a sense. And so I do want to touch on that because I was just talking to Jenna at HDO about this same thing. And this is something that doctors and researchers are coming on to figure out a better term for it because juvenile Excuse me. Juvenile Huntington's disease. That just means before, if you start showing symptoms before the age of 20 years old, but it is much more severe the younger you are. And so it just feels more evil the younger you are with this disease. And Justin's CAG repeat was 59. And he started showing symptoms when he was, when I met him and I didn't even realize it. I had no idea. I thought he was just a little weird. And he might be, but it was the Huntington's disease or the juvenile Huntington's disease. He was 19 when I met him, and there's that. Starting showing symptoms at 19, he passed away when he was 36. Well, you can see the difference in how fast the progression is in in those different areas, and that is one of the big differences with juveniles, obviously, is that you start showing symptoms younger, but it also progresses much faster. Tell us a little bit about just so that people understand the genetic implications of Huntington's disease. Was there any indication of Huntington's disease in Justin's family, and how did that look? There was. Uh, so when I met Justin, we were both 19, and um, I remember him telling me this one time, before I had even gotten pregnant with our son, which we got pregnant very fast. We were young. Things happened. <laughs> but I had a one-year-old child, Dakota, who has a different father. So Dakota was one at the time I met when I met Justin. And Justin had told me, and it's weird because I can still remember that moment. It just is embedded in my head. Him saying to me, telling me the story about how his mom had Huntington's disease, and she passed away when she was 36, same age as him. And he said, he has a 50-50 chance of having this disease. And if we ever have kids, he didn't, uh, he, if we ever have kids, he just didn't want his kids to see him the way he saw his mom. And the way that he thought he saw his mom was that she didn't recognize her kids when, when they would go to see her. He, he, that scared him. So he told me, if, if, if we ever have kids, and, they, uh, and if I ever have Huntington's disease, I don't ever want my kids to see me like that. And thankfully, Justin knew exactly who his kids were up until he passed away. But it stuck in the back of my mind. But even though he told me, it wasn't a real reality because I didn't know. And again, looking back, he was symptomatic when I met him and I didn't even know. It sounds like you have been a caregiver for a very long time. And left here from your perspective of being that caregiver, Justin, obviously, and now your daughter. Yes. So I was not Justin's caregiver. He... He was tested. He was diagnosed with Huntington's disease after we broke up, very shortly, actually, after we broke up. But caregiving for my daughter, I wouldn't want to have it any other way. It's not something that I dreamed of being as a mother. Who wants to take care of it? But of course, that's my job and that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do the best job that I possibly can for her. But it can be challenging. Patience is one of the hardest things to learn, especially for me. As you can tell by my personality, I have I'm very high energy and talk and interrupt a lot. And so it's not good to be an interrupter when you're talking to somebody with Huntington's because they need a lot of time to, to get out what they're saying. So learning patience has been a challenge and I am still learning patience every single day. But my daughter is, she's just an amazing, beautiful little girl. And she really is my best friend. I think even despite this disease, we'd be best friends because she's my mini me. But it's, I wish there was like a, there's no actual word. It's heartbreaking to go through it, but 
we just fight every day and just keep moving forward. And that's literally all I can do. If I can't focus on the past and it's bittersweet, actually, when you look at the past. A lot of parents will look through videos of their kids and they're so excited when they see those little videos of their babies being all young. And that's exciting for us, too. But when you have a child who's battling juvenile Huntington's, those memories are bittersweet and they're a reminder of what you are losing. And as you watch those videos of your child in the past, you just start keep being reminded. So again, it's bitter, bittersweet. And I think I'm just going back and forth because it is, I guess what I'm saying is it is, it's very difficult. But if I focus on the challenging things and the sad things and what is to come ahead, then I won't make it through. I just won't, I won't, I won't be able to be there for my daughter and I need to be there for her. So we just push forward every day. But she is the one who actually keeps me strong. She really is. <laughs> Let's talk about her. Okay. T- tell me about her. Autumn is my sassy little daughter. <laughs> oh, she loves to sing. She loves butterflies. She loves Macklemore. She sings Macklemore. That's her playlist. Macklemore and Taylor Swift are, are always on play for Autumn. She loves her dogs. We have three dogs. Max is her boy. That's her boy. She actually has a tattoo on her arm of Max's little face she just got for her birthday. She loves to ride her four-wheeler. Sadly, this year is probably the first year she did ride it once this year, but it was very scary. Obviously, things are, everything's changing, but she loves her four-wheeler. There's a lot of things that she loved that, unfortunately, she can't do anymore, but we still try to incorporate anything we can and figure out ways to still do it, like cheerleading. Autumn is also a cheerleader in high school. And uh, this year, we're actually really worried about her just being able to participate, making sure it wasn't that I knew she could still be a part of the team, but I needed to talk to the principal. And we had, we talked about it at the IEP meeting to make it clear, like my biggest thing was Autumn wants to be a cheerleader next year, but she's having trouble doing everything. She can't do these practices that all the other girls are doing, like things need to be modified for her. And, and so modifications are going to be made. And I would also make sure that she's included and not just there sitting on a chair. I want to make sure that they change a cheer. They change a cheer around to make sure there's a moment where Autumn is doing something, that she's part of the team. And yeah, I am a mama bear when it comes to my daughter and making sure that nobody messes with her. (laughs) She does the same to me too, though. (laughs) Justin was diagnosed. Is that then when you look towards diagnosing Autumn or what did that process look like for diagnosing Autumn? I had no idea that even juvenile Huntington's was a thing for years. And I don't know the moment when I thought, but when Justin, let's go to when Justin was in the, Justin was put in a nursing home in 2012. And when he was put in that nursing home for me, whew, I was like, I don't know, just seeing the changes so fast. So when we broke up, I guess we should back up because we broke up and we moved about an hour away. So the visits with Justin were not every day now. They were just like once. We were just we were still going, bring the kids and they'd spend time with them. It just wasn't like on a daily basis. So when you're seeing a progressive disease and these changes, they happen. You can see it more when you don't see the person as often, right? It was a slap in the face when Justin was put in that nursing home and everything in me just broke inside. And all of a sudden I got really scared for my kid's future. Again, still not even knowing that juvenile Huntington's disease was a possibility. But at that time, that was the very, that was my, my advocacy journey really started was, was like, I got to do something. I need to do something for my children's future to make sure that if they ever have this disease, that I know that I was a part of something to at least try to make a difference for them. But Justin battled his battle. The kids stood right by him. They watched him. I never kept anything from my children. It's not like I was trying to scare them. If they knew there was a chance that they would have it. 
um, I got them very involved with my advocacy and they were so, um, I'm so proud of my kids. I really raised some wonderful children. The kids would have Justin come to the school that when, when he was, when I was not able to pick him up from the nursing home and take him to the kids at school for their little events and things, the, the nursing home was so great to accompany him and to bring him to those events. But the kids were always so proud of their dad. They never were like embarrassed about their dad at all. They were just like, this is my dad and he has HD and it's, but the diagnosis, so Autumn, she knew her chances. But again, going back to JHD, there was never, I, I, there was no moment that I, when I knew. Things just started to change in her. And it was early things were the behavior issues. And as things started to change, I was monitoring things. And so while there was a concern for years because it started with her behaviors and then it started being like I had probably found out about the possibility of JHD, but it was so rare that I'm like, no, there's no way. It's really rare. There's no there's no way. So I blew it off. But as the years went on, it was a couple. It was probably 2006. 15 to 2006, 17. Yeah. So about those two years is where we saw just weird behavior changes. Things were just different with Autumn and her, her speech wasn't starting to slur, but it was the way she talked started to be just slightly different. And to the outside world, she looked like a normal kid. She looked like a normal kid, but I know my daughter and I could see the changes. And then it started seeing changes in school and the decline in school and her being defiant and not really getting trouble, just not really caring. Just it's fine. And it was actually at the school. And there was a few, there was some movement, movement stuff that she had started going on too. Just certain little things. And again, so I guess I should also say that a lot of times kids with juvenile Huntington's disease don't get diagnosed until much late in the progression. And that's because they're misdiagnosed so much. But I'm a different case because I'm so involved with the community. And I knew that I needed to be very careful with this if it was. When we looked at the diagnosis and getting her tested overall, the bottom line was is things had started to change so much that she needed help in school. She was already diagnosed with ADHD. That wasn't going to get her the help she needed. She, If she had this disease that I was at this point pretty much convinced that she had, and I was so scared. I was so hoping I was wrong, but I was very worried. But if she did, that that means... This school situation is going to be a whole different ballgame. It's a progressive disease. She's not even going to be learning anymore. And it's going to be less learning. And there's so there it's a whole different ballgame, not an IEP for an ADHD kid. This is a totally different ballgame. And in order to get her the help we needed, we needed to know if she had the disease. So we decided they decided um, it'd be best to maybe bring her back in to evaluate again. And she was tested. Um, But we waited to. So she was tested in December of 2017. Again, just because when you get tested doesn't mean everybody's kids at different stages when they get tested, though. Autumn was in early stages. She was tested in December 2017, and then we got the results in January. So I say she was diagnosed in January with a CAG repeat of 72. And I just went through just a little bit of the stuff that I've done over the years with advocating and for their future and everything. And when Autumn was diagnosed, I completely shut down. I just was like, I couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. And could you imagine me being quiet, not saying anything? Yeah, believe it. I did it. It was like 18 months where I'm just like, I just, it wasn't that I was afraid to talk about it. I just couldn't even say the words without just breaking down. And I also had had back surgery and I was home and Autumn was, it was just a lot of, I'm home and I'm going through this and now I'm just constantly just getting in my head. I'm just so sad and I'm so scared. And after a long, deep, dark road, 
just told myself, if I'm sad, she's going to be sad. If she sees me sad all the time, she's just going to walk around. If you're around someone that's crying, are you going to be like, oh, you're all hot? No, you're not. You're going to be sad too. And I don't want her feeling that way. So whether I need to pretend or not, I got to put on a happy face and just try to give her the best life that I can. And I try not to focus on the things that she can't do and just find things that she can do. Because when I start going into all the things she can't, that can be a really sad, deep, dark hole to go into, to just think of all the things that you're going to miss and can't do. Just focus on things you can do. And so that's the mindset I had put myself in. And another part of that diagnosis was the fact that I felt completely alone in this community that I had been a part of for a very long time. This, it it just, I felt alone. I felt the Huntington's disease community itself were a rare community. But within that community, I should be able to find the support and stuff I need. And there was not a lot of that at all. And that also made me feel really sad. So when I came out of this awakening, I also said, if nobody else is going to do it, then I'll do it. Okay, I'll start talking about it. I'll start explaining and telling our story, how this progressed. I'll figure out ways to do it. And I did. And, and I haven't stopped and I won't stop. And that's how I cope. So let's talk about some of those great support systems and how access to you telling your story. Can you tell me where families can find that information? So let's start with um, support groups, right? So we have a wonderful juvenile Huntington's disease caregiver support group that I started with Help for HD in 2019 or 2020, I believe. Uh, Wonderful support group. My great friend Angie is actually here at convention. She came with her boys. Um, We are just a great group of moms, and we always are looking for new people. It's just wonderful. And that, that meeting is held the first and third Tuesdays of every month. It's virtual for people who don't want to be on virtual camera. You don't need to be. Also, if you don't want to join the meetings, we have a group chat that's open all the time in Facebook that some people utilize on a daily basis. Some people don't at all. Some people just like to read and react. It's, what, it's for whatever. It's just there and it's a chat. It's a private chat for specifically juvenile Huntington's disease caregivers. So we have quite a following on TikTok and our name on there is at London and Autumn. On YouTube, I believe it's just London Tabor. But if you Google juvenile Huntington's disease, it's you'll probably find our channel right at the top. <laughs> uh, of course, Instagram, London and Autumn and where else? Um, but the biggest thing that is my newest thing is I have my own podcast. Called the JHD Journal, a juvenile Huntington's disease podcast, a podcast that is specifically dedicated to all things juvenile Huntington's disease, whether it be stories of our family, other families, if we're remembering a family, talking about serious issues. Check out the JHD Journal, a juvenile Huntington's disease podcast available on Spotify. We'd love that. <laughs> My husband, Chris, I should also mention him. He's very left out a lot and he shouldn't be because I don't know what I would do without him, literally. So my husband, Chris, we met. Justin was, this was before Justin was in the nursing home, it was about 2009, so shortly after his diagnosis. But Chris has been the most amazing husband and he would just supportive to the kids and their father during everything. And of course, then with Autumn's diagnosis, and we don't have any children together, but our children are our children. They're still our children. And I'm so lucky that I have him in my life because I literally don't know what I would do without him. And I'm not just saying that as I just, I don't know what I would do without him. He, after Justin passed away in 2018, Autumn wanted Chris to adopt her. She actually, all the kids wanted Chris to adopt him years ago, but he just out of respect just didn't want to while Justin was still alive. 
But last year, the, now the boys are now over age, so they, they could be adopted, but they're over 18 now. But Autumn's, will you adopt me? And he's, yes. So last year, she was, he, she's officially Autumn Tabor now, and she just loves that. <laughs> you know what's also so, so cute about it? Is Autumn, the moment she was adopted, she has called Chris dad ever since. And it, he, she's always called him Chris. And that was like a normal thing. And he, she would refer to him as dad when she's talking to people in conversations. But it was just so odd that he, I think I even had a conversation. I'm like, I just, I didn't stop her from saying it, but it was just so cute to us. And he goes, she doesn't have to. I'm like, no, I think she, she just wants to. It's just adorable. What a gift for him. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Lucky him. I know, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Shout out to my babe. There you go. <laughs> hey, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so very much for sharing your story and yeah. sharing your family's story. And I am sp- inspired. So thank oh. you. Thank you so much for doing this. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on and for letting me ramble on your podcast. That's perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. That's great. Next, we spoke with Jenna, a professional baker who is 22 years old, positive for HD, and pre-symptomatic. She shares her difficult testing experience, what it's like seeing her father's journey with HD, and how she got involved with support groups and advocacy. I want to welcome you to PTC's Insightful Moments My Vibe, and thank you so much for being here. We would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us about you. My name is Jenna Woodard. I am 22 and I have Huntington's disease. So Huntington's disease is a rare and incurable brain disease. So it's a disconnect between the brain and the body. And it is best described as having Alzheimer's, ALS, and Parkinson's all in one. So it's just like a quick little... That's your elevator speech about Huntington's. Yes. Okay, (laughs) If you were to really want to do a deep dive for someone about Huntington's disease after giving them that overview, how do you describe it? That's like a very loaded question, Mm -hmm. I feel, because HD is very different for everybody and everyone's journey is different because it affects, you can have motor skill issues, you can have brain issues, or you can have speech issues, or you could have all of them. My best advice to someone who is learning about HD is to go to HDEO. It is a wonderful website that talks about HD and it breaks it down into age categories. So you can do talking to teens, talking to children, talking to young adults, talking to grown adults. And it's in civilian terms. (laughs) So it's easy. It's not medical and it's not scary like Google. So that is my best advice to someone who's like doing a deep dive. Can you give us an understanding of how this works through a family, the genetic implications of Huntington's disease. The genetics for Huntington's disease is you have a 50-50 shot of inheriting it if your parent has it as well. It doesn't matter how many kids you have, each child has a 50-50 shot of getting it. And if you have, the Huntington's gene is a repeat on chromosome 4. And if you have over 40, you are technically gene positive. So that's like the scientific explanation of it. And just for a little fun fact, I have 42. So I'm on the lower end, but I am still gene positive. You indicated that it was 50-50 in every family. So can you give us an understanding of how this is through your family? So I I got Huntington's through the de- my dad's side of the family. My We were just looking at my family tree, actually. 
And there are eight of us who have it, starting with my great grandfather, then my grandmother, my aunt, my uncles, my dad, and then me and one of my cousins. And there's a lot of uh, talk in the HD community about testing. Can you give the listeners an understanding of what uh, families face about that decision of whether or not to be tested? To test is a really big and can be traumatic test, or excuse me, a big and traumatic experience because this is an incurable disease. So it's a lot to grasp and hold on to, and they won't test you until you're 18. And I got tested at 18, but it was a lot for me to handle at such a young age. There are a lot of people that have decided not to test, but if you do, you will go to your doctor and then you will have three like phases. You'll get blood work done, you'll do a mental exam, and then you'll do a psychological exam as well. And then you'll do a motor exam, which is all like finger tapping, how you walk, how you talk, like that. The onset, though, for Huntington's disease varies, right? Yes. The age of onset. Can you give us an understanding of that? It's very different for everybody, just like how everyone shows their symptoms and everything. Let's talk about the signs. Yeah. Um, some of the experiences, uh, we talked about the different functions that are affected by Huntington's disease. Can you give the, uh, the listeners an understanding of those different symptoms and how they're affected by the different functions? Um, so different symptoms can be anything from difficulty speaking with eating. There's a lot of trouble with choking and swallowing. There are movement issues where you could either be super, super stiff or you could fluster and falter and move in ways that are uncontrollable and involuntary. And then there's irrational behavior, depression. We talked a lot yesterday about people being depressed, suicidal. So that, I think, is the biggest issue in the HD community. You talked about suicide being a very important aspect of Huntington's disease. What do you think drives that the most? The knowledge that this is incurable, that that's really scary. You hear the word breast cancer, you hear the word cancer, and you freak out. But cancer can be cured. In, in best cases, it can be cured. But HD at the moment, I'm saying at the moment, fingers crossed, we will find a cure, but it's incurable. And it's scary to come to your doctor's appointments and see people who have progressed further than you or might be your age and are starting to progress and seeing how they've been affected by it. I know personally I struggle with that. I have a tendency to symptom search and I'm non-symptomatic at the moment, but anytime I drop something, I'm like, oh, Huntington's disease, it's getting to me. So I think the worry and the anxiety behind that is probably the biggest thing. And the constant worry and the stress of that leads to the depression and just the unknown is scary for so many people. So I think that has the biggest factor. So you talked a little bit about no cure at this time. What is available for families living with Huntington's disease? So I'm still learning this with the irritability. There's the problem with we can't sleep that well. As far as anybody goes that can't sleep well, we can take melatonin, sleep medications. But as far as what you can really do, it's staying healthy, staying active, exercising the brain and the body. The brain is a big one that people forget about. 
And it's important to stay strong in every aspect. So later down the road, when you start to falter, you're at your best still. So tell me about Jenna. When you introduced yourself, I'm Jenna, I have Huntington's disease. But go further. What? Who is Jenna? And tell me about you. I always feel like I never know who I am. So like I mentioned, I am 22. I got tested when I was 18. I am gene positive, like I said, as well. And for my job, I'm a professional baker. I love to bake. I am, I'm always the cookie lady. I'm always the cake lady. Let's see what else. I am an HDO ambassador. HDO is an international nonprofit with Huntington's disease. And it's a really amazing program because it's all about peer support for the entire world. So we have people from Egypt, Africa, the UK, the US, everywhere. So we get on Zoom and we just meet up and connect and get shared tips and pers- different perspectives. I am also a mentor for H- sorry, NYA. There's so many acronyms. And I have a 15-year-old mentee who's actually at convention this year. And I got to meet them. So that's extremely exciting for me. We just built this connection. And I think that's the most important part to me about HD. I love educating people, but meeting the community is my biggest thing. I feel safe here. So ambassador program obviously has to be a huge benefit to anyone because it, it could be such an isolating disease. Yes. I think both the ambassador program and the mentorship program are good stepping your toe in the water because HD is overwhelming. So when you're with um, a mentorship program, you get one person and we don't pair you up by geographical region or anything like that. We pair you up by experience and what you're going through. So you instantly have a connection with this person if all goes well. And you just, you have at least one person in in your corner and you know that you can count on them. So it's nice to cling to them if you don't know where to go. Yeah. So I walk the halls uh, of the conference and I see, and you talked about it having juvenile Huntington's disease to some of the later onset. Um, And there's a broad spectrum of symptoms, broad spectrum of population. I learned that with Huntington's disease, it doesn't matter whether you're male or, male or female. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't, it, it, Huntington's disease can infect anyone. The older adults, how do you think they find support? And how do you think they find acceptance? Because I see such a clear connection of the younger folks, and especially people like you embracing the, your peers. How do you think the older generation, someone like your father, finds that support? That's a hard one. In my personal position, my father, I'm the only one in my family who acknowledges Huntington's disease. So my father is in complete denial. He's aware that he has it. He acknowledges that he has it, but doesn't want to talk about it or anything. So the best thing you can do is to educate yourself for when those people are ready. So that way they know where to turn to. And you can, I said this yesterday in my to test or not to test session, offer them help and support groups a million times because a million and one might be the time they say yes. So just stay adamant and keep pushing and just try to help as best as you can because when they're ready, they'll be ready and they'll turn to you. So you mentioned that everyone in your family will not acknowledge Huntington's disease except for you. 
How did you come to the point to say, I want to be tested, I want to acknowledge this? So my testing story is, I know you heard a little bit about it yesterday. It's not a common one. I was having some health issues when I was 18 and ended up in the hospital for a 10-minute seizure. And my mom reached out to my dad and was just, we don't know why this happened to her at first. Is there anything on your side of the family that could be affecting her? And he said, oh, I just tested positive for Huntington's and I know my whole family has it, so she's at risk. So she didn't want me to know because I was laying in the hospital bed. So she stepped outside the room and told my doctor, who said, it's probably unrelated, but let's put it in her file anyways. And after that, they sent me to my pediatrician and just for a normal checkup to see what was going on. And my pediatrician let it slip that I was at risk. And I was completely unaware of what Huntington's disease was. So I got in the car with my mom and I was like, mom, what is Huntington's? Because the doctor said I had it. And she was like, oh, yeah, you might. It was like an awkward, I didn't know what to say. She didn't know what to say situation. And she also didn't know much about it. I don't even, she probably turned to Google, but she never, it probably scared her too much to tell me. So we went to a world-renowned hospital, hoping that would be the best decision. And if you get tested at a center of excellence, you go through these You go through three appointments. You go through two to make sure that you actually want to test. And on the third one, they'll test you. But each time, you have to have someone with you. And then when you come in to get your results, they sit you down with a psychologist and the doctor and the person that you brought. When I went to get tested, it was one appointment. You want to get tested? Let's do it all. So I got tested. I went back. I wasn't required to bring anybody. But my mom and I cling to each other, so my mom came. And at the next appointment, he said, yep, you're positive. Don't have children. And for those of you listening, that is not how that works. Yes, you can pass down HD. There's a 50-50 shot, like I mentioned earlier, but there are so many ways to have children. And I know that now, but back at 18, when I didn't know what HD was, when I didn't have this community, I was so afraid. Um, And I I was in Baltimore at the time, Baltimore, Maryland, and there's no support groups there. There's, I didn't know to go to the center of excellence or anything. So I just sat with it and didn't, I did what my dad did because this is all I knew. And I was not in denial, but not acknowledging. So when I moved to New York, I was looking for another neurologist and found Dr. Hanspel at the Albany Medical Center, COE. And that was the first time I'd been to a COE. And she was phenomenal. Probably the entire, not probably, she is the reason I am involved. Because she looked at me and was like, you know, we have support groups, right? I said, nope. I had no clue. So she handed me the flyer got me connected. And she was the first doctor to really say, she put her paperwork down and was like, are you okay? How are you grasping things? She spoke to me like I was a human when she has a heart. So she directed me to the support group, which was all older. Phenomenal people, but older people. Like I mentioned, I'm 22. It was weird to me. So I went to the support groups 
And then we had a gala fundraiser. And I went to that and I got to meet the people from my support group. And my grandmother went with me. It was, it was lovely. We got to dress up. And then I met more people and I became a board member because they were asking for volunteers. And I now sit as the advocacy chair, chairman on the board. And I run our social media page. And I'm hosting a kickball event fundraiser for us. So I, I'm pretty active on the board now. And through the board, I learned about just all these things. And I did my own research because once I was in the board, I was like, I want to just dive in. This isn't enough for me. One Zoom meeting a month is not enough for me. I like to stay busy. I did my own research and I went to the HDSA website and they have a drop down for NYA. And I went to that website, which has a connection to HDO. And it was like a spider web. And I just went all over and all my tabs were opening to HGSA stuff. It's bookmarked on my phone now. And yeah, I just did the nosedive into the community. And now I run advocacy booths and I, I educate people. That's like my way of accepting it was just nosediving, which is not recommended for everybody because <laughs> it can be a lot, but being involved and staying active in the community is how I handle things. Let's explain to the listeners some of the acronyms. Oh, yeah. yeah Sorry, so, guys. No, that's okay. Because COA or COE, yeah. that is the Center of Excellence, which is a hospital that is known for Huntington's disease. So they specialize in the genetic testing. HDSA? Huntington's Disease Society of America, which is the overall group for Huntington's disease. And then you said HDYO? Huntington's disease youth. Youth. Yeah. HDYO. Technically, it's for kids ages 12 to like 35, but we're trying to expand past 35. So we're trying to dissolve the youth part, but it is for those ages technically. Did you have conversations after your diagnosis with your father? Slightly. He sent me a very long message and at the end of it, apologized for passing the gene on to me. Is there anything you would like people to know about the Huntington's disease community? I would like you to know everything about the Huntington's disease community. It is such an amazing community. I love being involved in it. And Huntington's disease, the word incurable, the word terminal is so scary. Google Huntington's disease is so scary and probably wrong because it'll take you to Wikipedia. So turn to the community because we are here to help you, to show you that it's not scary, to be a shoulder to cry on, someone to understand what you're going through. And when I talk to people, I tell them this, they want to be empathetic, which I appreciate, but I just, I don't need that. I've come to terms with it. I just want to talk about it. And that's what we can do with one another because we understand what everybody's going through. We're all in the different boat, kind of. We're all in a different row in the boat, but we're all still in the boat. And I'm glad because it was just so beautiful that you just took the time to teach us, right? And, and be that ambassador that you're doing so well and so beautifully. So I cannot thank you enough for doing this. Oh, thank you. 
Finally, we have Lacey, who is HD positive and pre-symptomatic. She speaks about her family's history with HD and the shame that went along with the burden of the disease. She describes about being a caregiver from a young age. She also tells us about how difficult it was to receive the testing news and the dark places her mind went after she found out. But she shares all the many things she now does to benefit her mental health. Welcome to our PTC's Insightful Moments My Vibe. We are so happy to have you. Thank you. Please introduce yourself and tell us about you. Okay, so my name is Lacey Walkish, and I am 32 years old from Wisconsin. I currently have Huntington's disease. I was diagnosed in 2019, and I have a CAG repeat of 44. I'm pre-symptomatic, and so I'm just trying to live my life proactively. Right now, I work full-time in Shawano, Wisconsin as a client support specialist with the homeless population, and I just got certified as a peer support. I'm super excited to explore that field and see what I can do amongst the Huntington's population and community. Yeah, that's wonderful. I would love for you to explain to someone who doesn't know anything about Huntington's disease what Huntington's disease is. It's a brain disease. It's neurological and it's passed on in your your genetics um, by my mom. My mom had it. My grandma had it as well. My mom's only sibling had it and he actually committed suicide due to the complications of it. My mom passed in about 2016. My grandma was about 2012. My grandma's twin sister passed in 2010, and my uncle passed away in 2008. So it's every two to four years, there's somebody in my family that has passed from it. It's very much, I trace it back in my genealogy from all the way from Poland, from my ancestors in Poland. It's definitely generational, and I am affected by it. I don't know when I will develop symptoms, but I know that I will. And it's a brain disease, like I said before, it's neurological, so it affects like the motor symptoms. So you, it sounds like you have a large family history. Oh, yeah. And there's what was the process you took to be diagnosed? So I thought that I didn't have the disease. Like my mom had it and my grandma had it and I was caregiver to both of them. I was caregiver to my auntie as well. I just remember being really young and taking care of my family who had the disease. So that was like feeding them, going for walks, like when they weren't working anymore, just like spending time with them and just providing care, helping dress them, bathe them. After my mom passed away in 2016, I just, I wanted to get tested for so long, but my mom always said, but you could get declined on insurance or this or that because of having a positive result. So maybe you want to think about that a little bit more. So I did, and I just didn't get diagnosed for, or didn't do the testing for so long because of that. And then eventually after she passed away, I just wanted a peace of mind. And I was alone actually when I got my results and they go through the genetic counseling for so many hours. And then they tell you, do you want to hear these results when they called me? And my results were like, so I did the blood testing through informed DNA and um, my results were like six to eight weeks late. So I was just like waiting, but it was like on the back burner because I really didn't think I had the disease. 
And then they called me one day and I was like filling up. I, I remember it specifically. I was filling up with gas at the gas pump. And, and they're like, hi, this is so-and-so from Informed DNA. Do you want, are you ready to hear your results? We have your results for your blood test. And I said, yeah. And then she's, you are positive for Huntington's disease. And I was like really devastated. Um, the day before that, I lost a baby. So it was like a lot of trauma within two days. Actually, a lot over the last several years because my mom passing and my grandma. It was just very traumatic, really painful past with it. And then so those two days specifically were like really, really painful and really heavy for a very long time. And I'm still like dealing with that and working through that. There's a lot of grief that's been associated with the disease in my family. And it's really hard sometimes because like my brother's are there for me, but they're also distant. They both don't have the disease. They live their own lives. And I think I think they carry maybe survivor's guilt or just feel bad because they don't have it. Plus, we also live very far away from each other. I'm essentially alone, but I know like I just got into the Huntington's family and the HDSA and got involved and started doing groups last October. So I'm super excited about that because I don't feel so alone anymore. But just like um, being so far away from everybody and just riding this train alone feels like really lonely. So. And this diagnosis affects the entire family. Yeah. And so you talked about being a caregiver. Yeah. In that role you took on. Yeah. And being a, talk to us about from a care caregiver perspective what that means for someone caring for a loved one with Huntington's disease. Okay. For me, like, I grew up doing it. You know what I mean? It was ever since we were, ever since we were born, we knew, like, our aunts had it, our grandma had it. So it was just, like, I was just born into that role, essentially. And I think that's why I'm such, like, a, I have a big heart today because I took care of my family and because it really humbled me and it really helped me appreciate life. And it's really hard and devastating to watch over time, but I would not want it any other way. It's painful, but I think that's the best thing you can do for your family if you have the means and the mental space to do it. It's, it leaves me speechless at times. It really does because that time with my mom and my grandma and stuff, like I, I, even though it was hard, even though it was painful and heavy, I do not wish to take that back or go back and like redo time or anything like that. It was just, it's so bittersweet. And I'm here at this conference and it's amazing. And there's so much, but it's been really emotional because it's my first time here. And it's, I just keep thinking about my mom and my grandma. And it's just, it's bittersweet, but. I bet you, I hope you're thinking about how proud they are. Oh you. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Then we talk about the family members who are, you talk about the survivor guilt or the ones who are, may not have tested or, or chose to be tested or have yeah. been tested. So there's a big thing in the HD community about testing. Can you give our listeners an understanding of that? So back in the day, so I was born in 1990, testing was like not a thing. My mom didn't get tested officially until she died in 2016. And so she didn't officially get tested. She didn't officially get blood tested. She just got told, you have a history of family of Huntington's in your family. The doctor just stated Huntington's disease on her medical records eventually. But she, we didn't ever know her keg repeat or anything like that. We just knew we had a long history of it in our family. My brothers both got tested because they were both looking at having children with their girlfriends. 
And by the grace of God, they did not have the disease. So then again, when I'm thinking like, oh, about getting tested, I'm like, if I don't have this disease and my mom didn't pass it on at all. So it stops it by my mom. And that was like super, a super proud moment. But then it was also like, I was listening to that song yesterday that was at the talent show about the um, family inheritance. And it really is like an inheritance. And it's something that like I'm proud of today to be so strong to, to have this disease because I have the strength to fight it. But now my, some of my other cousins, like they, their dad had it. Like my first cousins, their dad had it. And there's two of them that have the disease. And then two of them that one of them like refuses to get tested. She's just over time. And she's the same age as me. If I get the disease, I'll get it. And it's really a personal choice when it comes down to it. It's whether or not you want to know. And because sometimes I wish that I didn't know that I had it, that I could just live my life because now I'm like, I feel like I'm on a timeline. I feel like I want to go back to school and I sign up for school, a four-year degree this starting this fall. And I'm like, but is it really going to matter after? Because it's I'm on a short timeline. So what is what am I going to accomplish in this amount of time? But then again, that's I need to be present. And I really try really hard to be present in the day and in the minute and wherever I'm at, because it is really you never know. What what helps you in staying focused, though, on, you know what, school's a great idea for me. Yeah. And sc- what skills and tools and resources do you use to keep that vision? Honestly, I'm in therapy. I do brain spotting, and that really helps me immensely. And it's just that's demagnetizing everything in my brain and separating it into its own paths so that I can work on each thing. Because I've had a lot of trauma in my past, too, so... I'm working on, I'm also in recovery from addiction. I'm going through a lot right now, but therapy definitely helps. And I also journal and I meditate. I do a lot of meditation. I try to do a lot of walking. I read, I read a lot. I like to educate myself on the disease and stuff related to it, but also on stuff just to get my mind out of the disease as well. I like, I love learning. I love taking on new stuff, but There was a point in time where I was absolutely absorbed in learning about my disease and I was just like, that's too much. I got to balance. So really finding that balance is super important, especially like being pre-symptomatic, not hyper dwelling on certain things, being connected with my care team because I worked with a neurologist down at the UW-Madison in Wisconsin and working with my social worker and staying connected with my support groups, both recovery and for the Huntington's. Um, I attend the caregiver one, and I also attend the young adult with Huntington's. I do a lot. I do a lot. And also work. Work helps, but I also don't want to overwork myself. It sounds so that you've you're got all your resources balanced. Yeah. Pretty well, right? It took a long time to get there. Right. I did. But I think, and just keeping a positive mental attitude, waking every day, waking up every day grateful, grateful I get to see another day, grateful for the moment, grateful for this opportunity, grateful for everything. You got to be because if I was at a point where I was so lost in the dark, I was hopeless. I just really fell into this hopeless route. What's the point? What's the point going on? Because I have this disease anyways. My mom's gone. My family's gone because of this disease. And what's the point? And I really had to dig myself out of that hole. Also, my addiction was during that time. It peaked during that time after I got diagnosed. Um, and I found recovery. And that has been a blessing and has made opportunities like this possible because without my recovery, like none of that would have 
my recovery and my disease are very much hand in hand. You know what I mean? They're both a disease. And so I've, I work programs for both of them. Um, I give it up to God a lot. I have to give a lot up to God. Um, and I have to let a lot of things go. And I, I, I love that. And I love hearing that. And I wonder if we were to talk to somebody who might be facing that. Because we I don't think community outside of Huntington's understands the depression right. and how deep that is and right. how that can lead to addictions and, and suicide. And I don't think it's known as well. So if we were to explain that to the community, you had an uncle who committed suicide. I don't, I wonder if the community really understands what that means as it's related to the disease. So it's very depression. It's very prone to depression, very stressful. You, you eventually lose your job. My uncle was losing his job. My aunt was divorcing him. He had to go back and live with my grandfather because he was starting to show symptoms. Your independence is taken away and you lose that little by little, day by day, and you can't do nothing about it. It's really out of your control. But if you don't have a grasp on what's in your control versus what's not, I think it comes down to acceptance, right? If you if you are in denial of it, it's very easy to get in that depression. But depression is very high and likely in Huntington's disease if you don't stay present with it and don't reach out and, you know, check in with yourself and make sure you're how am I feeling today and what's bothering me on the inside? Because it really comes down to all these external things can look nice. I can have the job. I can still have, still be driving. I could, you know, but really inside I'm feeling a big heavy weight because I know eventually that my time's going to come. And if you're just waiting for that time to come, like I said, I, even the college thing, it's really hard to, I need to get out of this rut because I know that college is going to be worth it. And I, my time is valuable and just to make the most of it. If you could give any word of advice to someone who is was young like you are and getting diagnosed and really facing that initial horrible saying you have Huntington's disease, what is your advice to them? I would encourage you to do it. I would encourage you to get tested. I would cr- encourage you to, it all comes down to support, right? But it's also per- personal choice. So if you don't, if it doesn't feel right in your heart, then don't by any means. But there's things that are in the works and therapies and medicines and studies and everything every day. And science is moving so fast that by the time it comes down to it, that's where that's, see, I'm talking myself back into it. Like my time is precious, but there's so much being done that I have hope. And really finding a way to get that hope and finding a way to accept it. When you do find out, it will make it so much easier, smoother, not easier, smoother, but get connected, get connected with the HGSA, get connected with a neurologist and a team and your family and whatever family is to you, whether the HD family is here for you and I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the love. And what would you say to all the researchers out there? Thank you. Thank you very much. And I can't wait to try some of the new things that are coming coming because this is a miracle. These things are miracles. Like this was unheard of, like the studies and the trials that are being run and the treatments and gene therapy. And and like that was unheard of in my mom's generation when she had it. It was just you had the disease, you accepted it or you just dealt with it. And um, there was a lot of shame in my family. So I just really want to advocate and help others not feel that shame and shed light and educate the public what it really is and not to treat 
people with Huntington's any different than anybody else because we're human. We all deserve love and respect. That's perfect. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we can end it any better than that last sentence. Yeah. So I cannot thank you enough for being here and doing this for us. Absolutely. And for sharing such great stories and your journey. It's very, we're very thankful. Thank you. No, thank you. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Insightful Moments, My Vibe, and for supporting voices within the rare disease community. Thank you as well to everyone who shared their stories on today's episode. Please visit our website www.ptcinsightfulmoments.com for more stories and resources. If any of the stories resonated with you today, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you are listening or by sharing this show with a friend. I'm Paula Orendash, and this has been Insightful Moments, My Vibe from PTC Therapeutics.